0: Today's sermon text is Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 979. Hear the word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. and that there is no partiality with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Would you pray with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize that all of your Holy Scripture was written for our learning and for our good, and so would you help us now to hear your Word, to understand it, and to inwardly digest it, so that by patience and comfort from your Holy Word, we may embrace and hold fast to the glorious hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are coming near the end of our series in Ephesians. Lord willing, we'll finish it up next week. And throughout the book, we've seen an overwhelming display of the grace of God. Over and over, and especially those first three chapters, you see how God has forgiven our sins in Christ, how He's redeemed us, how we have, by His grace, gone from death to life. And then chapters four through six, you turn the page and we see how that new life has transformed us. How new life in Him transforms our life as in the relationships we live. So over and over, we see how that, what that means for us as a church, for the body of Christ, that we are not just kind of acquaintances, we are brothers and sisters, that if you belong to Jesus, you're made part of the same family. And then for the past two weeks, we've been looking at how how belonging to Christ also transforms some specific relationships. How Some some relationships, Paul gives very specific instructions, what it looks like to live as wise, spirit-filled followers. So we looked a couple weeks ago at husbands and wives, and last week as children and parents, And this morning, we get one final kind of specific relationship that Paul zones in on and see how the gospel impacts the relationship between bondservants or slaves and masters. Now, the, the ESV that you heard read, the English Standard Version that we use at the church that I read in my own time, It has the word bondservant there, if you're looking at the text. If you look to the right of that little word, there's a little footnote that goes down to the bottom. In mine, it says, or, my my footnote reads, or slaves. So if you see that word bondservants, most other modern English translations translate this word as slaves. And uh, it's, it's a word that I'll use probably frequently in this sermon. I'll talk a little bit about why I think the ESV translates it this way later. And normally, I, I feel like, um, if you've been here for a while, I know there are a lot of visitors in the room, we're glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Normally, there's like introductory story, little quote that kind of gets us in, uh, you know, pique your interest. And I'm just going to assume that giving a a passage like this, that uh, it's provocative enough. That, that if you hear a, a discussion about slavery in a church in the American South, that's, that's reason enough to to listen up and to hear what's going to be said. And my prayer for for you, for me this week as we dive in is that we, would, that we would first and foremost be overwhelmed by the impartial kindness of our master and savior, Jesus. And that we would see what this has to teach even for us and how we wor- learn to work and lead for him. But the other thing that we normally do is we just kind of go right into a passage and walk through this bit by bit. But this morning, I, I do feel like there are a few questions that we need to kind of deal with at the outset, questions that need to be resolved if we hope to understand the passage as it was written in its original context, so written in the first century to a group of believers in a church in Ephesus, and then if we want to say, okay, now I want to apply that here, we, we've got to do some ground clearing and answer a few questions Beforehand, and you, you may have more questions than these. Know that I'm happy to talk about those after the service, or you can shoot me an email. I like talking about the Bible; that's a good thing for for me as a pastor. So please don't uh, don't be afraid to come ask me anything. But I, I just want to look at these three questions as we uh, before we get to the passage itself. So three questions about slavery and the Bible, and we'll start with a question about the context in which the letter was written. So trying to understand. That it initially said something to them there. It was supposed to mean something to the first people who read it in Ephesus. So the question is, what was slavery like in first century Ephesus? Because the reality is, when you hear, when you hear any word, like you bring pictures and history and all sorts of things into the connotation of those words, you bring that with you when you start reading something. And if you're from, I'm from Birmingham, if you're from the South, if you're from America, most likely when you hear the word slave, there's a whole host of things that attach itself to that word. And for me, the thing that jumps into mind, and maybe for you as well, is race-based slavery that existed prominently in the United States up until the 1860s. That's a very specific context that we think of, but We should ask questions of what are the similarities, ways in which that's the same here in Ephesus, and what are some differences, what's happening in Ephesus? So there are a few similarities that you should note. One, slavery is is widespread. So both in the American South and here, slavery was a widespread common occurrence. Uh, Most scholars just have estimates were between like a quarter to a third of the population in the city like Ephesus were likely slaves. And then beyond that population, there were a lot of people who were slaves at one point, but then had been freed or bought their own uh, way to freedom. And so there's a large portion of the population who, at some point in their life, were or still are slaves. So slavery is pretty common. And similar to the American South, the way that slaves were treated could vary widely. And some, we'll we'll read a quote here in a minute, there's some instances where slaves are afforded dignity and honor, where they're treated well. And there are other places where they are beaten. Uh, They're used in the gladiatorial games as sports for rich people to watch die in front of a coliseum. They're abused and manipulated. And other things that we won't mention. So you you could be a slave and be treated well. You could be treated poorly. And the, the, but the final kind of similarity, the reason that I even use the word slave here, is because you were as a slave. Ultimately, you were the the property. You belonged to someone else, and they could decide what to do with you. So there there are some some similarities. It is it is not a thing I want to like glamor up and say slavery in the first century is really not that bad. It has some some very big, major things we need to think about. But there are some pretty stark differences to be aware of as well. So New Testament scholar Murray Harris, he, he spells out some of these and this is in his book Slave of Christ. This is there on your note sheet if you grabbed one of those coming in. I'll stop along the way and make a few comments on this, but he says in the first century slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing, So slavery in the ancient world was not race-based. It wasn't that you could walk down the street and say, that person is a slave because of the color of their skin or the way that they look. It says that slaves were sometimes more highly educated than their owners. They held responsible professional positions. Some persons actually sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. So if you belong to a master who was a Roman citizen, at the end of your service... When you were released, you actually gained Roman citizenship yourself. That's a, a benefit. So some people would actually do this for social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Maybe this is the, the starkest contrast. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. Now I I don't I don't want to give you a lecture of like what first century slavery looked like that's not my intention here and there are whole books written about this thing but I do think it's important to answer the question because when you read your bible I want you to be thinking about what does it say to them there what is it like there first and I'm not saying that this, the institution of slavery there is good that's the next question we'll get to in just a minute but but it is different it's different so the the baggage that you we bring to this and immediately recoil at. You need to just be careful that when we hear somebody say, you know, the Bible supports slavery, we're thoughtful about what they're saying and our response. And I, that's really the, the main reason I want to answer that first question. What is slavery like in the, in the ancient uh, Roman city of Ephesus is because I want to get to this question. I mean, this is the question that maybe you've heard and maybe you've asked. Maybe you have unbelieving friends who have pressed this upon you or have you read it in a book. But this is the apologetic question. Does the Bible support slavery? Does the Bible support slavery? There are plenty of people who actually who don't maybe not know the Bible that well as a whole, but they know this passage. Right? They, they know this passage and others and they may sometimes even be happy to pull this passage out. And to use it to cast doubt on both the, the goodness of the God we serve and the trustworthiness of the Bible that we read. Uh, I'm going to read this quote. This is not on your notes because I don't want you to take it home with you. But And so just here, if, you, if you're tuning in right now, I'm not agreeing with this quote. I just think you should hear what, what's out there, what's being said. So this is an, an author who is uh, an atheist and he has a book written addressed to Christians trying to convince them to abandon their faith. He says, there is no place in the New Testament where Jesus objects to the practice of slavery. St. Paul even admonishes slaves to serve their masters well, and to serve their Christian masters especially well. Nothing in Christian theology remedies the appalling deficiencies of the Bible on what is perhaps the greatest and the easiest moral question our society has ever had to face. That's a serious accusation. In other words, he's saying that the Bible, the Bible got this question wrong. It's on the wrong side of history. It actually supports slavery. And because of that, he's going to make an argument. You should not follow the God of the Bible. And so we, as Christians, have to answer, is this author correct? Is the Bible wrong in supporting slavery? And again, I have to give a brief answer here, but to be as clear as I can no i don't think the bible supports slavery as an institution and i i said i'll be as brief as i can i'm not going to be like ultra brief i'm going to give you some reasons for that okay don't just trust ryan here are five i want to just give five quick reasons why i think you can have confidence in answering this question okay so first while the bible regulates the relationship so this is regulating the relationship of slave and master Regulating this relationship does not imply support of the institution. Okay, so let me, let me give maybe a clearer example elsewhere and just kind of bring it over to how it applies here. So think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. Okay, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, uh, people come up to Jesus and ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus' response to those religious leaders is to say, in the beginning it was not so, but Moses gave you this because of the hardness of your hearts. He is not saying, Jesus nowhere in that command, in those kind of speech to the religious leaders, is saying, divorce is a good and let me tell you how to regulate it. He says, no, divorce is here because of wickedness and evil. Because of the hardness of your hearts. And because of that... God, in his mercy, gave rules to regulate what happens in divorce. To protect the vulnerable, honestly. And so here, when we come to a passage about slavery, it is not that we could read this and say, you know what, God is actually for the institution itself. It's that we have wicked and hard hearts. And God, in his mercy, is regulating this institution to protect the vulnerable. And to say even that, no matter where you are in this passage, if you're a master or slave, you can promote the gospel. No matter where you are, so this regulation of of institution does not imply that it is a good thing. Second thing, the Bible nowhere grounds the existence of slavery in creational or theological terms. Okay, so a few big words there, but think back up a couple of verse, a couple of passages to what what Paul has said about marriage. Okay, Marriage is important. When Paul says the relationship between a man and his wife, a husband and wife, the, the actual theological grounding of that, the reason for marriage, for its existence and beauty, is because it's trying to paint a picture of Christ and the church. So don't mess with it. Don't touch it. God is using that for good for all of history. Now, compare that to how he speaks here to slaves and masters, or go anywhere else in the New Testament, where you see this kind of language, and nowhere are you going to find Paul saying, you know, slavery is meant to be this portrayal of some creational good, some theological blessing. He's very careful. Paul is, uh, by the Holy Spirit, very careful in the words that he's using. He's not saying that it is a good that exists for all time, but it's something that needs to be regulated here. Third thing, the Bible, in its regulation of slavery, it regulates in the direction of humaneness, of flourishing, of looking more human. And I, I, I hope you hear that. We'll talk more about this. But in, in verse 9, even of our own text, of the, the talking to masters, you should see that it's moving towards not worse treatment, like get better work out of those underneath you, but towards protection and humane treatment. Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, he tells people that, hey, if you, if you were a slave or a bond servant when you became a Christian, you don't don't worry. You can still serve the Lord in that capacity. And then, just a little parenthetical note, he says, but if you get the chance to get your freedom, take that. Take it. He, he's regulating towards humaneness. And that humane treatment really gets at the fourth reason the Bible doesn't support slavery. In the Bible, all people are recognized as being made in the divine image. Created in the image of God himself and being created in that image means that every person has a value and dignity and worth regardless of their socioeconomic status, of their race, of whatever, whatever category you can think. God says you have worth because you're in the image of God. Paul, even here in this passage, Paul addresses slaves directly. We talked about this a couple weeks ago with Paul addressing wives directly. That's that's uncommon. That's not normal this time. Usually it's like teachers talking to men about how to run their household. And Paul here turns to slaves and says, I know you're in the church and you're a valued member. We want you here. Here's how it looks to live the Christian life in the church in this position. And this, this is memorably, maybe you, you've heard the, the Bible verse Galatians 3.28. I think this puts it well. The reason why we see this equal dignity. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those who are masters are not superior to their slaves. It's not that the, the particular responsibilities are not done away with here, but any sense of superiority, a kind of natural inferiority that slavery is built upon, it's obliterated. It's not here in the gospel. And lastly, particularly for those relationships where believing masters had believing slaves, uh, which that atheist author said was like the worst possible scenario. I think what we see is actually the Bible's call to live as one family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that puts cracks in the foundation of slavery in the first century that ultimately leads to its topple and tumble centuries later. And one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Philemon, where you see this pictured so beautifully. It's in the book of Philemon, Paul is writing to his friend Philemon on behalf of a runaway slave, a man named Onesimus. Uh, Onesimus, it seems, ran away from Paul, uh, ran away from Philemon rather, and somehow became a Christian, came in contact with Paul. And in the book of Philemon, Paul is actually sending Onesimus, this runaway slave, back to his former master, the man he ran away from. And Paul says this to his friend Philemon in Philemon 15 and 16, look verse 16 especially, he's sending him back so, Philemon, you should receive him no longer as a bondservant. But more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Not just as like spiritual brother, real, flesh and blood brother. Receive him back. I think if you look at the Bible as a whole, I, I, I don't believe it supports slavery. I think it's clear trying to regulate, help people know in the positions when they received Christ. If you were a Christian living in Ephesus and you were a slave, Paul's saying, what does it look like for you to live as a Christian? He's not saying slavery should continue for forever. And I hope that's a helpful overview. I know that's quick and you may have more questions about this. You should be thankful because uh, what I I did give an hour-long lecture on this question at Christ Fellowship Church. That's not what this is and you should be thankful for that. But if you have more questions about that... I. Uh, this is something that we talked about at my former church, at Christ Fellowship. You can go find that lecture on their website. You can ask me about it. I'm happy, again, that if you talk about this, if you have further questions. But but I want to spend time there because I do. I really, um, because I love you, because I love the Bible, because I love the God of the Bible. And I don't want you, friend, when you, or even kids, those of you who are looking at college in the next few years and you go off and, A professor comes and says, you know the Bible is horribly wrong on this thing. I want you to have confidence in this word. I want you to to know that we can trust what he says and trust that it's for our good. And even for texts that may be hard, maybe are are difficult to understand, that make us wrestle with some hard questions, we don't have to be afraid of those. We We can read them in their context, we can see that God is using them to point to the goodness of Christ. To help us know how to live as his followers. Now with, with that question answered, there is one last question before we dive in. And that I think will get us into the text, I hope, here. Is uh, is an application question. So how then do we apply this passage today? When I look out and, and thankfully say, none of you are exactly bond servants or slaves. None of you are exactly masters. Institution doesn't exist here in this way. But I'm assuming, I'm assuming in my question, there's a way to apply this. Okay, so I, I think there's more than just reading this and defending it. We can do that. We should talk about that. But but we should think about maybe relationships where the overlap isn't exact, but similar. So there are some that uh, I would tell you, if you here are doing prison ministry, this is a great text to talk to those who have restricted freedom serving in prison or those who are guards those who are in the military for most of you here i don't think you're out on parole if you are i'm glad you're here and we love you but for most of you what you do is you go and you work jobs and i don't mean to say that jobs are like slave labor even though some of us may sometimes feel that way what i mean is that, that there are institutions where slave where where we have authority and there are those who are under some authority And then those who have authority over those. And so I do think that we can turn to this passage and corresponding passages like it and ask, how does this help us think about the way that we work as employees or employers or kids? How do you think about being a student under the authority of a teacher who God has put there? So we're going to take that and turn to the passage now. And you'll see this here on your note sheet. Here's the main point before we walk through the text. The main point of this passage is this, both those who serve under authority and those who lead with some authority must do their work under the one who has all authority. Those who serve under authority, so slaves, bond servants, employees, students, and those who lead with some authority, masters, employers, supervisors, teachers, We all do this work, our work, under the one who has all authority, who is Christ. And we'll just walk through the text. We're going to use kind of those three categories of people as we walk through the text and start with those under authority. There are a great host of temptations for those who find themselves in this kind of place of under authority. Um, I, I generally, yeah, I do. I really hate reality television. However, there is a show called Undercover Boss, and because I knew it fit here, I did some painstaking research and watched like half an episode of Undercover Boss this week. And it is cringy. It is hard for me to watch. Because what happens, if you're unfamiliar, is that there's a CEO or a president of a company who goes into just like a regular local store that he or she owns. They they disguise themselves, and they're coming in kind of as like a new employee or something like that. And it is, it is so difficult for me to watch and not just want to turn it off when, when there's this CEO who is going through employee training. And then there's like, you know, a low level, mid level manage, manager who is training this employee. And, and usually it goes something like this. The CEO says like, don't the rules say we're supposed to do it this way? And then the, the trainer says something like, oh, we don't have to follow those rules. Stick it to the man. Do your own thing. Or or you, uh, the other way is like there's maybe like 30 minutes of training and then that manager is over on their phone playing for the rest of the episode and then there's this big reveal later and it's like, oh, I just trained my CEO and told him that his rules don't matter and that I just kind of slacked off in front of him. We, we can be tempted in that same kind of way in the way that we work. Those who are employees, we face that kind of situation to work with maybe resentment for those who are over us. To think about ways to undermine them. Or maybe just to be plain lazy in our work. But look back at how Paul addresses slaves, bond servants, and tells them how to obey in verses 5 through 8. Let me read verses 5 through 8 again for us. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Paul is telling us here to pay attention to how we work. And the first thing he says up front is to obey your earthly master. So for those who say, I'm given to laziness, I feel like I don't need to do what the one in authority tells me to do. Paul says that's, that's not an option for those who are in Christ that we give ourselves to work hard to obey those above us. But it's not just that we do that. God cares about the way we work as well. So we work respectfully, right? With fear and trembling. And here, I don't think it's Paul saying you should have this terror and foreboding dread before your boss, you go to him with deep respect. That's how he uses that phrase elsewhere. Respecting those who are in a position of authority above you. He tells us that we should work with sincerity, with a sincere heart, doing the will of God from the heart. So our motives, when it comes to obeying, even if our our actions may look like obedience, God cares about even our motives, our heart, what's going on inside of us as we're obeying. He says you're not doing that just to manipulate your boss. Not trying to do that so that you would uh, you could maybe subvert them even in some way. You're going to do it right but just kind of half right. He says you're doing it with sincerity, from the heart, out of a genuine desire to do what is right for them. And then this is the one that I think just is probably ubiquitous. The thing that struck me and I want to be careful of and warn us from. Paul tells us to work faithfully. He says, "Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ." I have a friend who, for several years, has worked in management at a, a group that owns several fast food restaurants, and for for a season of his life, part of his job was going into restaurants and doing leadership development and training, and kind of just seeing how the restaurant r- runs and is looking. And those were announced visits. So when, when my friend would go visit, uh, in this instance, a Taco Bell or something like that, he would say, it is the cleanest place you have ever seen. You could eat off the floor of that Taco Bell that day. Your customers are going to be treated well. Everything is going to run smoothly because they knew that, like, the boss was coming. And then, like, he'd let a month or two pass, and it's not like his face is on a poster anywhere there, so people forget what he looks like, and he'd just show up to see how it looks like then, and just say, you know, it's a very different experience when they know that the boss is not going to be there sometimes. And we can do this as well. We can push to work hard when the teacher is like looking over our shoulder or when we know the boss is coming for a visit. Uh, but, but Paul says, God says, your work should be done so that if you're sitting in your home office and you're doing this with nobody near you, Nobody who will ever see what you're doing for the next eight hours of your work day. You're working not to please the man who may show up. You're working to please the Lord. We shouldn't be working just when people are watching, not working diligently. We work at all times to please the Lord. And the reason that he gives for working is that. It's that we should remember for whom you ultimately work. Remember whom you ultimately work for. Yes, you you have Uh, Most of us have an earthly master, bosses, supervisors, teachers. We should obey them. But Paul actually kind of raises the stakes and says, ultimately, service done for them is service done for Christ. And that's really the foundation of the passage. Three different times here he mentions this. Obey as you would Christ. As bondservants of Christ, render good service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Uh, when you join the United States Army, one of the ceremonies that you undertake, kind of your first thing, one of the first things you do is you take an oath of enlistment. And there you, you swear a, a couple of things. You make promises of a few sorts, but one of those promises you make is that you will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over you. Now I've never been in the army. I I know friends who have been and I don't know that any of them have actually had the president stand in front of them and give them like a direct order from his own lips. That that's a rarity in in the armed services. But they're making this promise, this oath because their obedience is ultimately not just to the one who's right above them but to up the chain of command to the president himself. And in the same way, we who work, who find ourselves in these kinds of authority structures, we should see that our service ultimately goes up the chain of command. If, if we want to kind of compartmentalize our lives and say, you know, I, I will serve well at church. Uh, I will go and do things that I think like family things these are the places where I want to serve the Lord and be faithful. But but in my job, and kind of my secular life, God's not really involved there. And what I do there looks a little bit differently. This really just does away with that notion. Commentator Peter O'Brien, he says, Any and every task, however menial, however small, it falls within the sphere of his lordship, of Christ's lordship. And it's done in order to please him. So part of our motivation for working this way is that we are working to serve and to please God. It's not just merely the guy or the girl on the organizational flow chart who's just like one or two steps above you. But then Paul gives another reason for working in this way. and It's to know that the Lord will reward you for your good work. That's what he says there in verse 8. So I, I just gave you a lot of ways that I hope you work I hope you work respectfully and sincerely I hope you work faithfully I hope when you go to work and you're like I don't want to do this job for the guy above me that you will say I will do this job well for my master in heaven and I would love to promise you that if you go to work this next week and you work this way for the next six weeks you'll get a promotion and a raise You'll you'll have just all sorts of Accolades showered upon you, but I can't make that promise. I don't know what that holds. I I hope that people do see your good work and it is rewarded. But bosses sometimes overlook hard work. And sometimes they, they actually see hard work and they say, that guy's probably gunning for my job. He's doing something to undermine me. Maybe in the worst instance, they see, you know what, that guy is a faithful worker, so I can load up more stuff on him or her, and I may not have to even pay them more. And friend, if that's you, if you feel like all of this work that I've done, the way that I've worked faithfully, the way I've tried to obey this text, it is not paid off. It's not paid off in the here and the now. Just know, friend, that that if your work goes unnoticed and underappreciated by your supervisor, there is absolutely nothing that escapes the gaze of your heavenly Lord. There is nothing. That goes by him that he misses. Every single good work. That you do at the office. Every time in school. You are working to please God. To please Christ. He sees that. And so I, can't, I have no promises. About what it looks like to put this into practice. Other than just the joy of obedience in the Lord. But I, I can promise you. That on that day, ultimately, that you will look in the face of Christ and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. For those who work, who belong to Christ, those who are in Christ, he holds out heavenly treasure. For those who work well, for those who obey him. So for those who are under authority, if you're a a grocery bagger or an accountant, if you're a teacher or a graphic designer, if you're a handyman or a nurse or anything in between, how you carry out your assigned tasks matters. You bear the name of Christ. When you go to work, you are bearing the name of Jesus with you. And it is well that you do that. We want you to do that well. You should know that God holds out good reward for you. Now, not everybody in the church is an employee, uh, there are some who have positions where there is, I'm using, trying to use some careful words here, there's some authority. And here is where Paul turns and addresses masters in Ephesus and I think maybe managers in Birmingham. And the temptation is for those in some authority, so you have authority in your sphere of work, and, and we can be tempted to utilize that authority wrongly. Okay, Authority itself, being in charge, is not a problem. Actually, authority is a good gift that God gives to us. He is the one in authority himself, right? So authority is not the problem, but, but it is a problem if power goes to our heads and if we're not careful, we can, be, uh, we can begin to treat those beneath us, those who like lie below us on an organizational chart as if they are actually beneath us, as if in reality, they don't deserve our time, as if they exist merely to carry out our wishes and our whims. And if they won't do it, I'll get rid of them, or I'll find something that'll motivate them to do it. And to that group, to you, if that's you, Paul has something to say as well. Look at verse nine. He says, "Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, this command to masters is maybe the most surprising instruction given here. Paul turns from masters to slaves. And he says, you know, I just talked to the slaves, those whose society would say are below you in a certain way. And I want you to act the same way as I told them to act. I want you to have kind of the same attitude as I just told them to have. I don't want you to kind of puff yourself up with pride and march around. Like this. I want you to go and to serve them with the same kind of demeanor. He's not telling them necessarily that they go and are are serving them in everything they do, but says you work faithfully and respectfully and sincerely. So pay attention, masters, to how you lead. You could call this the managerial golden rule. So if you want those underneath you to be respectful and faithful and sincere, then you should lead in that same way. Uh, This is, I'm sure... We're at a church. All of you have done this at some point. You've been to Christian Chicken and gone to get Chick Fil A, and when you go and say, uh, "Thank you for that diet, Dr. Pepper," they respond and say, oh, "My pleasure." Right? That's my pleasure. And that's that's something. Obviously, they're taught and they're they're onboarding stuff, but but that was something that was actually baked in from the very very beginning. If you go back and kind of read some of this of uh, the founder Truett Cathy, that he said, this is, I think, the, the way we treat people can change lives. And that begins in our stores and goes out to other places. I apologize if you've had a terrible experience at Chick-fil-A. I'm not responsible for that. But that's, that's what the, the hope is, is that uh, it was set up in such a way that the owner said, you know what, I think that if we actually take care of those beneath us, and they take care of those we're serving, that's actually a good way to run a company. So for those in leadership... What Paul is saying here is we're not just going and demanding respect from those beneath us. We're, we're actually demonstrating and modeling respect for them we're even modeling respect to them. You respect those underneath you just as you expect them to respect you. And then Paul has a very specific application he gives here in the stop to uh, and stop threatening those underneath your authority. And briefly, just in the context of, of slavery, this, I think, is a really big deal. Uh, this is maybe, if you want a sixth point for why I think the Bible doesn't support slavery, I think this is something that changes the nature of master and slave in some ways. So uh, a theologian, a guy named John Frame, he says, these commands of Paul undermine the whole institution of slavery. Slavery without threats is scarcely slavery. It was one of the characteristic things that distinguishes slavery From other forms of employment was the right of a master to threaten the slave and the constant threat of a beating that supported that relationship. So when Paul says, stop threatening, that that really changes the dynamic here. Masters are not meant to rely upon threats to motivate their slaves and bosses and supervisors. Those in positions of authority today should be careful not to do the same. Be careful how we do those types of things. Now, this this doesn't mean there's no place for critique, for like an employee evaluation. I know some of you have run companies or you've overseen employees and at some point you've had to fire someone because of the way that they have broken company policy or because they've not done their job well. But I will say, so if you're in authority, even if that's you, if you've had to use that, have to do that, those in authority should not take delight. We shouldn't go around to other friends and say, I got to, I got to tell this guy and put this guy in his place today. And it felt so good. Just reveled in that power. No, Paul is saying, don't, don't threaten though. He's saying, if, in fact, if your lean is to use the stick every time you need to get something done from your employees, maybe, maybe consider using the carrot. Maybe, maybe consider encouragement. Think about treating them respectfully and honorably. And then just as he does with slaves, he tells masters there are good reasons to treat those under your authority in this way. And this really gets to the last point of the sermon as we look at the one who has all authority. The one who has all authority. And Paul here tells earthly masters they need to be mindful of how they treat those beneath them. Because Christ, Jesus, is the master of both slave and earthly master that Jesus is the one at the very top. So these masters with some authority, they are ultimately not the boss. And you, friend, if that's you, your employees are ultimately, if they're in Christ, they're not serving you. Even you, you're serving Christ. If you're a Christian and you go to work tomorrow, your work is done for him. You serve the same master as those who you may oversee. Even if there is nobody above you in your organizational chart, you now have a supervisor too. You have some authority, but it is limited by the one who has all authority. And so those of you here who are employers, who are supervisors, who are teachers, know that one day you give an account to God for how you use that authority. That you will stand before him and he will look at how you've treated even those below you. More than that, Paul says at the very end that we need to know that Christ is an impartial master. He's an impartial master. And it's here where I think we see the goodness and grace of the gospel in full display. Jesus Christ is an impartial Lord who is not impressed by those who have positions of great authority. And he doesn't stand aloof from those who are below him. He doesn't just say, you know, you don't have authority here on earth and I will have nothing to do with you here. And the gospel in part reminds us that he is impartial towards masters and towards slaves, towards servants, because Jesus Christ himself has been both. The Bible tells us that all things were created through him. That by his position of creator, every bit of his creation owes him ultimate allegiance. We are all, whether you recognize it or not, under His authority. And what sin did, what sin even is today, is that turning on its head. Sin was us, even in the beginning, looking at God and saying, I won't serve you. You're not the master of me. I am. I'm the one in charge. But as the king... As the Creator, Christ has every right at that point to annihilate us, to do away with us, to have nothing to say to us. And there is where the Gospel shines in all of its beauty. Because the Master and Lord of heaven and earth, instead of doing that, instead of leaving us to our own devices, we read that the Master becomes a servant. That he empties himself, takes on the form of a servant. Philippians 2, it's the same word, the form of a slave. And dies a death on the cross, becoming obedient even to that. Friends, Christ died to forgive rebellious slaves like you and like me. And he did not stay there, but in glory God resurrected him from the dead. So now he reigns as master of heaven and earth, the Lord of all. And we owe all allegiance and trust to him. And as now the servant king, he calls all of us to come to him. As the impartial one, he says, come. And you don't come to him and say, do you know how important I am? I have no need of you. And you don't come to him and say, you know, I'm at the very bottom of the totem pole. And I'm not sure if you would even have the time of day to know who I am or want to deal with me. No, the impartial servant king looks on all of his people. And he says, welcome. Come. I am the servant who is the master. And friend, this is the invitation of the gospel. Jesus stands ready to save and receive men and women, young and old, rich and poor, slave and master with impartiality. All are welcomed to him. And if you do not know him, that's the invitation to you today. To come and lay down your life before him, to turn and to trust him. And then for all who are in Christ, brothers and sisters, know that your labor is not in vain. If you think that you're so important that your work can happen however it wants to, or if you think you're so unimportant that your work just doesn't matter at all, know that the Lord sees you, that he knows you, and ultimately, he welcomes you, no matter what your master here may do. And it is he who lovingly reigns over all of us and receives our praise in our work. Let me pray for us as we continue to worship. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the good master of us all. But Lord, you did not stand aloof and apart, but that you came among us as a servant. And so we pray. I pray even this week as we go to work, as we pray for brothers and sisters, if we're not working ourselves, as we're praying for our children, for our friends who are working, that you would help us to do that for you. That we would represent your name well. And that you, our impartial Lord and King, would draw people to yourself. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We continue to worship together.